128 days before. Florida was plenty hot, certainly, and humid too. Hot enough that your clothes stuck to you like scotch tape and sweat dripped like tears from your forehead into your eyes. But it was only hot outside, and generally, I only went outside to walk from one air-conditioned location to another. This did not prepare me for the unique sort of heat that one encounters 15 miles south of Birmingham, Alabama at Culver Creek Preparatory School. My parents' SUV was parked in the grass just a few feet outside my dorm room, room 43. But each time I took those few steps to and from the car to unload what now seemed like far too much stuff, the sun burned through my clothes and into my skin with a vicious ferocity that made me genuinely fear hellfire. Between mom and dad and me, it only took a few minutes to unload the car, but my unair-conditioned dorm room, although blessedly out of the sunshine, was only modestly cooler. The room surprised me. I'd pictured plush carpet, wood-paneled walls, Victorian furniture. Aside from one luxury, a private bathroom, I got a box. With cinder block walls coated thick with layers of white paint and a green and white checkered linoleum floor, the place looked more like a hospital than the dorm room of my fantasies. A bunk bed of unfinished wood with vinyl mattresses was pushed against the room's back window. The desks and dressers and bookshelves were all attached to the walls in order to prevent creative floor planning, and no air conditioning. I sat on the lower bunk while Mom opened the trunk, grabbed a stack of the biographies my dad had agreed to part with, and placed them on the bookshelves. I can unpack, Mom, I said. My dad stood. He was ready to go. Let me at least make your bed, Mom said. No, really, I can do it. It's okay. Because you simply cannot draw these things out forever. At some point, you just pull off the band-aid, and it hurts, but then it's over and you're relieved. God will miss you, Mom said suddenly, stepping through her minefield of suitcases to get to the bed. I stood and hugged her. My dad walked over, too, and we formed a sort of huddle. It was too hot, and we were far too sweaty for the hug to last terribly long. I knew I ought to cry, but I'd lived with my parents for 16 years, and a trial separation seemed overdue. Don't worry, I smiled. I's a gonna learn how to talk right southern, Mom laughed. Don't do anything stupid, my dad said. Okay. No drugs, no drinking, no cigarettes. As an alumnus of Culver Creek, he had done the things I had only heard about. The secret parties, streaking through hayfields. He always whined about how it was all boys back then. Drugs, drinking, and cigarettes. It had taken him a while to kick smoking, but his badass days were now well behind him. I love you, they both blurted out simultaneously. It needed to be said, but the words made the whole thing horribly uncomfortable, like watching your grandparents kiss. I love you too, I'll call every Sunday. Our rooms had no phone lines, but my parents had requested I be placed in a room near one of Culver Creek's five payphones. They hugged me again, Mom, then Dad, and it was over. Out the back window, I watched them drive the winding road off campus. I should have felt a gooey, sentimental sadness, perhaps, but mostly I just wanted to cool off, so I grabbed one of the desk chairs and sat, out, sat down outside my door in the shade of the overhanging eaves, waiting for a breeze that never arrived. The air outside... Sat as still and oppressive as the air inside. I stared out over my new digs. Six one-story buildings, each with 16 dorm rooms, were arranged in a hexagon around a large circle of grass. It looked like an oversized old motel. Everywhere, boys and girls hugged and smiled and walked together. I vaguely hoped that someone would come up and talk to me. I imagined the conversation. Hey, is this your first year? Yeah, yeah, I'm from Florida. That's cool, so you're used to the heat? I wouldn't be used to this heat if I were from Hades, I'd joke. I'd make a good first impression. Oh, he's funny. That guy Miles is a riot. That didn't happen, of course. Things never happened like I imagined them. 
Bored, I went back inside, took off my shirt, lay down on the heat-soaked vinyl of the lower bunk mattress, and closed my eyes. I'd never been born again with the baptism and weeping and all that, but it couldn't feel much better than being born again as a guy with no known past. I thought of all the people I'd read about. John F. Kennedy, James Joyce, Humphrey Bogart, who went to boarding school, and their adventures. Kennedy, for example, loved pranks. I thought of the great perhaps, and the things that might happen, and the people I might meet, and who my roommate might be. I'd gotten a letter a few weeks before that gave me his name, Chip Martin, but no other information. Whoever Chip Martin was, I hoped to God he would bring an arsenal of high-powered fans because I hadn't even packed one, and I could already feel my sweat pooling on the vinyl mattress, which disgusted me so much that I stopped thinking and got off my ass to find a towel to wipe up the sweat with. And then I thought, well, before the adventure comes the unpacking. I managed to tape a map of the world to the wall and get most of my clothes into the drawers before I noticed that the hot, moist air made even the wall sweat, and I decided that now was not the time for manual labor. Now was the time for a magnificently cold shower. The small bathroom contained a huge, full-length mirror behind the door, and so I could not escape the reflection of my naked self as I leaned in to turn on the shower faucet. My skinniness always surprised me. My thin arms didn't seem to get much bigger as they moved from wrist to shoulder. My chest lacked any hint of either fat or muscle, and I felt embarrassed and wondered if something could be done about the mirror. I pulled open the plain white shower curtain and ducked into the stall. Unfortunately, the shower seemed to have been designed for someone approximately 3 feet 7 inches tall, so the cold water hit only my lower ribcage, with all the force of a dripping faucet. To wet my sweat-soaked face, I had to spread my legs and squat significantly. Surely John F. Kennedy, who was six feet tall according to his biography, my height exactly, did not have to squat at his boarding school. No, this was a different beast entirely, and as the dribbling shower slowly soaked my body, I wondered whether I, whether I could find a great perhaps here at all, or whether I had made a grand miscalculation. When I opened the bathroom door after my shower, a towel wrapped around my waist, I saw a short, muscular guy with a shock of brown hair. He was hauling a gigantic army green duffel bag through the door of my room. He stood five feet and nothing, but was well-built, like a scale model of Adonis, and with him arrived the stink of stale cigarette smoke. Great, I thought. I'm meeting my roommate naked. He heaved the duffel into the room, closed the door, and walked over to me. Chip Martin, he announced in a deep voice the voice of a radio DJ. Before I could respond, he added, I'd shake your hand, but I think you should hold on damn tight to that towel till you can get some clothes on. I laughed and nodded my head at him. That's cool, right? The nod. And said, I'm Miles Halter. Nice to meet you. Miles as in to go before I sleep, he asked. Huh? It's a Robert Frost poem. You've never read it? I shook my head now. Consider yourself lucky, he smiled. I grabbed some clean underwear, a pair of blue Adidas soccer shorts, and a white t-shirt, mumbled that I'd be back in a second, and ducked back into the bathroom. So much for a good impression. So where are your parents? I asked from the bathroom. My parents? The father's in California right now, maybe sitting in his lazy boy, maybe driving his truck. Either way, he's drinking. My mother is probably just now turning off campus. Oh, I said, dressed now, not sure how to respond to such personal information. I shouldn't have asked, I guess, if I didn't want to know. Chip grabbed some sheets and tossed them onto the top bunk. I'm a top bunk, man. Hope that doesn't bother you. Uh, no. Whatever is fine. I see you've decorated the place, he said, gesturing toward the world map. I like it. And then he started naming countries. He spoke in a monotone as if he'd done it a thousand times before. Afghanistan, Albania, Algeria, American Samoa, Andorra, and so on. He got through the A's before looking up and noticing my incredulous stare. 
I could do the rest, but it'd probably bore you. Something I learned over the summer. God, you can't imagine how boring New Hope, Alabama is in the summertime. Like watching soybeans grow. Where are you from, by the way? Florida, I said. Never been. It's pretty amazing, the country's thing, I said. Yeah, everybody's got a talent. I can memorize things, and you can... Um, I know a lot of people's last words. It was an indulgence learning last words. Other people had chocolate. I had dying declarations. Example? I like Henrik Ibsen's. He was a playwright. I know a lot about Ibsen, but I never read any of his plays. I didn't like reading plays. I liked reading biographies. Yeah, I know who he was, said Chip. Right, well, he'd been sick for a while, and his nurse said to him, You seem to be feeling better this morning. And Ibsen looked at her and said, On the contrary. And then he died. Chip laughed. That's morbid, but I like it. He told me he was in his third year at Culver Creek. He started in the ninth grade, the first year at the school, and was now a junior like me. A scholarship kid, he said. Got a full ride. He'd heard it was the best school in Alabama, so he wrote his application essay about how he wanted to go to a school where he could read long books. The problem, he said in the essay, was that his dad would always hit him with the books in the house. So Chip kept his books short and paperback for his own safety. His parents got divorced his sophomore year. He liked the creek, as he called it, but you have to be careful here, with students and with teachers. And I do hate being careful. He smirked. I hated being careful, too. Or wanted to, at least. He told me this while ripping his duffel bag, throwing clothes into drawers with reckless abandon. Chip did not believe in having a sock drawer or a t-shirt drawer. He believed that all drawers were created equal and filled with, filled each with whatever fit. My mother would have died. As soon as he finished unpacking, Chip hit me roughly on the shoulder, said, I hope you're stronger than you look, and walked out the door, leaving it open behind him. He peeked his head back in a few seconds later and saw me standing still. Well, come on, Miles to go halter. We got shit to do. We made our way to the TV room, which, according to Chip, contained the only cable TV on campus. Over the summer, it served as a storage unit, packed nearly to the ceilings with couches, fridges, and rolled-up carpets, the TV room undulated with kids trying to find and haul away their stuff. Chip said hello to a few people, but didn't introduce me. As he wandered through the couch-stocked maze, I stood near the room's entrance, trying my best not to block pairs of roommates as they maneuvered furniture through the narrow front door. It took ten minutes for Chip to find his stuff, and an hour more for us to make four trips back and forth across the dorm circle between the TV room and room 43. By the end, I wanted to crawl into Chip's mini-fridge and sleep for a thousand years, but Chip seemed immune to both fatigue and heat stroke. I sat down on his couch. I found it lying on a curb in my neighborhood a couple years ago, he said, of the couch as he worked on setting up my PlayStation 2 on the top of his footlocker. I know the couch's got some cracks, but come on, that's a damn nice couch. The leather had more than a few cracks. It was about 30% baby blue faux leather and 70% foam, but it felt damn good to me anyway. All right, he said. We're about done. He walked over to his desk and pulled a roll of duct tape from a drawer. We just need your trunk. I got up, pulled the trunk from out under the bed, and Chip situated it between the couch and the PlayStation 2 and started tearing off thin strips of duct tape. He applied them to the trunk so that they spelled out coffee table. There, he said, and sat down and put his feet on top of the uh, coffee table. Done! I sat down next to him, and he looked over at me, suddenly said, Listen, I'm not going to be your entree to Culver Creek social life. Uh, okay, I said, but I could hear the words catch in my throat. I'd just carried this guy's couch beneath a white hot sun, and now he didn't like me? Basically, you've got two groups here, he explained, speaking with increasing, increasing urgency. You've got the regular boarders, like me, but then you've got the weekday warriors. They board here, but they're all rich kids who live in Birmingham and go home to their parents' air-conditioned mansions every weekend. 
those are the cool kids. I don't like them and they don't like me. And so if you came here thinking that you were hot shit at public school, so you'll be hot shit here, you'd best not be seen with me. You did go to public school, didn't you? Uh, I said, absentmindedly, I began picking at the cracks in the couch's leather, digging my fingers into the foamy whiteness. Right, you did. Probably. Because if you had gone to a private school, your friggin' shorts would fit. He laughed. I wore my shorts just below my hips, which I thought was cool. Finally, I said, yeah, I went to public school, but I wasn't hot shit there, Chip. I was regular shit. Ha, that's good. And don't call me Chip. Call me the Colonel. I stiffed a laugh. The Colonel? Yeah, the Colonel. And we'll call you, hmm, Pudge. Huh? Pudge, the Colonel said. Because you're skinny. It's called Irony Pudge. Heard of it? Now, let's go get some cigarettes and start this year off right. He walked out of the room again, just assuming I'd follow, and this time, I did. Mercifully, the sun was descending toward the horizon. We walked five doors down to room 48. A dry erase board was taped to this door using the du- using duct tape. In a blue marker, it read, Alaska. Has a single... The colonel explained to me that, one, this was Alaska's room, and that, two, she had a single room because the girl who was supposed to be her roommate got kicked out at the end of last year, and that, three, Alaska had cigarettes, although the colonel neglected to ask whether, four, I smoked, which, five, I didn't. He knocked once loudly, through the door, or screamed, Oh my god, come in, you short little man, because I have the best story. We walked in. I turned to close the door behind me, and the colonel shook his head and said, After seven, you have to leave the door open if you're in a girl's room. But I barely heard him because the hottest girl in all of human history was standing before me in cut-off jeans and a peach tank top. And she was talking over the colonel, talking loud and fast. So, first day of summer, I'm in Grand Old Vine Station with this boy named Justin. We're at his house watching TV on the couch, and mind you, I'm already dating Jake. Actually, I'm still dating him, miraculously enough, but Justin is a friend of mine from when I was a kid, so we're watching TV and literally chatting about the SATs or something, and Justin put his arm around me and think, I think, oh, that's nice, we've been friends for so long, and this is totally comfortable, and we're just chatting, and then I'm in the middle of a sentence about analogies or something, and like a hawk, he reaches down and he honks my boob. Hawk! A much too firm two to two... Two to three second honk. And the first thing I thought was, okay, how do I extricate this claw from my boob before it leaves permanent marks? And the second thing I thought was, God, I can't wait to tell Takumi and the colonel. The colonel laughed. I stared, stunned, partly by the force of the voice emanating from the petite but curvy girl, and partly by the gigantic stack of books that lined her walls. Her library filled her bookshelves and then overflowed into waist-high stacks of books everywhere, piled haphazardly against the walls. If just one of them moved, I thought, the domino effect would engulf the three of us in an asphyxiating mass of literature. "'Who's that guy who's not laughing at my very funny story?' she asked." Oh, right. Alaska, this is Pudge. Pudge memorizes people's last words. Pudge, this is Alaska. She got her boob honked over the summer. She walked over to me with her hand extended, then made a quick move downward at the last moment and pulled down my shorts. Those are the biggest shorts in the state of Alabama. I like them baggy, I said, embarrassed, and pulled them up. They had been cool back home in Florida. So far in our relationship, Pudge, I've seen your chicken legs entirely too often, the colonel deadpanned. So, Alaska, sell us some cigarettes. And then somehow the colonel talked me into paying $5 for a pack of Marlboro Lights, and I had no intention of ever smoking. He asked Alaska to join us, but she said, I have to find Takumi and tell him about the honk. She turned to me and asked, have you seen him? I had no idea whether I'd seen Takumi, since I had no idea who he was. I just shook my head. All right, meet you at the lake in a few minutes then, the colonel nodded. At the edge of the lake, just before the sandy and the colonel told me fake, beach, we sat down in an Adirondack swing. I made the obligatory joke, 
don't grab my boob. The colonel gave me an obligatory laugh and then said, want to smoke? I never smoked a cigarette, but when in Rome, is it safe here? <laughs> Not really, he said, then lit a cigarette and handed it to me. I inhaled, coughed, wheezed, gasped for breath, coughed again, considered vomiting, grabbed a swinging bench, head spinning, and threw the cigarette to the ground and stomped on it, convinced my grade perhaps did not involve cigarettes. <laughs> Smoke much? He laughed, then pointed to a white speck across the lake and said, See that? Yeah, I said. What is that, a bird? It's the swan, he said. Wow, a school with a swan. Wow. That swan is the spawn of Satan. Never get closer to it than we are now. Why? It has some issues with people. It was abused or something. It'll rip you to pieces. The eagle put it here to keep us from walking around the lake to smoke. The eagle? Mr. Starnes. Codenamed the eagle. The dean of students. Most of, the, most of the teachers live on campus, and they'll all bust you. But only the eagle lives in the dorm circle, and he sees all. He can smell a cigarette from, like, five miles. Isn't his house back there? I asked, pointing to it. I could see the house quite clearly, despite the darkness, so it followed he could probably see us. Yeah, but he doesn't really go into blitzkrieg mode unless classes start, Chip said nonchalantly. God, if I get in trouble, my parents will kill me, I said. I suspect you're exaggerating, but look, you're going in, you're not, you're going to get in trouble. 99% of the time, your parents never have to know, though. The school doesn't want your parents to think you became a fuck-up here any more than you want your parents to think you're a fuck-up. He blew a thin stream of smoke forcefully toward the lake. I had to admit, he looked cool doing it. Taller, somehow. Anyway, when you get in trouble, just don't tell on anyone. I mean, I hate the rich snots here with a fervent passion. I usually reserve only for dental work and my father. But that doesn't mean I would rat them out. Pretty much only the important thing is never, 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 never rat. Okay, I said, although I wondered, if someone punches me in the face, I'm supposed to insist that I ran into a door? It seemed a little stupid. How do you deal with bullies and assholes if you can't get them into trouble? I didn't ask Chip, though. All right, Pudge, we have reached the point in the evening when I'm obliged to go and find my girlfriend. So, give me a few of those cigarettes you'll never smoke anyway, and I'll see you later. I decided to hang out on the swing for a while, half because the heat had finally dissipated into a pleasant, if muggy, 80-something, and half because I thought Alaska might show up. But almost as soon as the colonel left, the bugs enroached. No seams, which for the record, you can see, and mosquitoes hovered around me in such numbers that the tiny noise of their rubbing wings sounded like cacophonous. And then I decided to smoke. Now, I think the smoke will drive the bugs away. And to some degree, it did. I'd be lying, though, if I claimed I became a smoker to ward off insects. I became a smoker because, one, I was on an Adirondack swing by myself, and two, I had cigarettes, and three, I figured that if any everyone else could smoke a cigarette without coughing, I could damn well, too. In short, I didn't have a very good reason. So yeah, let's just say that for it was the bugs. I made it through these entire drags before three entire drags before I felt nauseous and dizzy and only semi pleasantly buzzed. Buzzed. I got up to leave. As I stood, a voice behind me said, "So do you really really memorize last words?" She ran up beside me and grabbed my shoulder and pushed me back onto the porch suite. Yeah, I said. Then hesitantly, I added, "You want to quiz me?" JFK. She said, that's obvious. I answered, oh, is it now? She asked, no, those were his last words. Someone said, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. And then he said, that's obvious. And then he got shot. She laughed. God, that's awful. I shouldn't laugh, but I will. And then she laughed again. Okay, Mr. Famous Last Words Boy, I have one for you. She reached into her overstuffed backpack and pulled out a book. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the general in his labyrinth. Absolutely one of my favorites. It's about Simone Bolivar. 
I didn't know who Simone Bolivar was, but she didn't give me time to ask. It's a historical novel, so I don't know if this is true, but in the book, do you know what his last words are? No, you don't, but I'm about to tell you, Senor Parting Remarks. Then she lit a cigarette and sucked on it for so hard for so long that I thought the entire thing might burn off in one drag. She exhaled and read to me. He, that's Simone Bolivar, was shaken by the overwhelming revelation that the headlong race between his misfortunes and his dreams was at that moment reaching the finish line. The rest was darkness. Damn it, he sighed. How will I ever get out of this labyrinth? I knew great last words when I heard them, and I made a mental note to get a hold of a biography of this Simone Bolivar fellow. Beautiful last words, but I didn't quite understand. So what's the labyrinth? I asked her. And now is as good as a time to say that she was beautiful. In the dark beside me, she smelled of sweat and sunshine and vanilla, and on that thin moon night, I could see little more than her silhouette except for when she smoked, when the burning cherry of a cigarette washed her face in pale red light. But even in the dark, I could see her eyes, fierce emeralds. She had the kind of eyes that predisposed you to supporting her every endeavor. And not just beautiful, but hot, too. With her breasts straining against her tight tank top, her curved legs swinging back and forth beneath the swing, flip-flops dangling from her electric blue painted toes. It was right then, between when I asked about the labyrinth and when she answered me, that I realized the importance of curves of, one th- of the thousand places where girls' bodies ease from one place to another— The arc of the foot to ankle to calf, from calf to hip to waist to breast to neck to ski slope slope nose to forehead to shoulder to the concave arch of the back to the butt to the etc. I'd noticed curves before, but of course I had never quite apprehended their significance. Her mouth close enough to me that I could feel her breath warmer than the air. She said, that's the mystery, isn't it? Is the labyrinth living or dying? Which is he trying to escape, the world or the end of it? I waited for her to keep talking, but after a while, it became obvious she wanted an answer. Uh, I don't know, I said finally. Have you really read all those books in your room? She laughed. Oh, God, no. I've maybe read a third of them, but I'm going to read them all. I call it my life's library. Every summer since I was little, I've gone to garage sales and bought all the books that looked interesting. So I always have something to read. But there's so much to do. Cigarettes to smoke, sex to have, swings to swing on. I'll have more time for reading when I'm old and boring. She told me that I reminded her of the curl when he came to Culver Creek. They were freshmen together, she said, both scholarship kids, as she put it, a shared interest in booze and mischief. The phrase booze and mischief left me worrying I'd stumbled into what my mother referred to as the wrong crowd. But for the wrong crowd, they both seemed awfully smart. As she lit a new cigarette off the butt of her previous one, she told me that the colonel was smart, but hadn't done much living when he got to the creek. I got rid of that problem quickly, she smiled. By November, I'd gotten him his first girlfriend, a perfectly nice non-weekday warrior named Janice. He dumped her after a month because she was too rich for his poverty-soaked blood, but whatever. We pulled our first prank that year. We filled Classroom 4 with a thin layer of marbles. We've progressed some since then, of course, she laughed. So Chip became the colonel, the military-style planner of their pranks, and Alaska was ever Alaska, the larger-than-life creative force behind them. You're smart like him, she said, quieter, though, and cuter. But I didn't even just say that, because I love my boyfriend. Yeah, you're not bad either, I said, overwhelmed by her compliment. But I didn't just say that, because I love my girlfriend. Oh wait, right, I don't have one. She laughed. Yeah, don't worry, Pudge. If there's one thing I can get you, it's a girlfriend. Let's make a deal. You figure out what the labyrinth is, and how to get out of it, and I'll get you laid. Deal. We shook on it. Later, I walked toward the dorm circle beside Alaska. The cicadas hummed their one-note song just as they had at home in Florida. She turned to me as we made our way through the darkness and said, When you're walking at night, do you ever get creeped out, and even though it's silly and embarrassing, you want to run home? 
It seemed too secret and personal to admit to a virtual stranger, but I told her, yeah, totally. For a moment, she was quiet. Then she grabbed my hand, whispered, run, 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 and took off, pulling me behind her.